I think a materialist approach to things is very, very consistent with uh, my experience in Christian social justice. I feel like the, the deeper I get into anarchist practice, the deeper my faith is getting at the same time. I would hope that you know, securing means of life for all would be something all people of faith would say, oh yes, that's at the basis of what we believe. Those who are most marginalized know the most about the truth, good and the beautiful. To me, it's less that I think building class solidarity is a bad thing, as much as it seems like if you don't attend to things like anti-black racism, um, that's always going to get in the way of building class solidarity, actually. And when you go back, you find that a lot of uh, revolutionary grassroots participatory movements, the, the precursors to what you could call um, the barrio assemblies and these like, you know, grassroots neighborhood organizations, a lot of these were sponsored by the church. What does it mean to say that the Christian tradition is internally contradictory and there are antagonisms there? Um, you're always uh, being faithful to some aspects and betraying other aspects. Welcome to The Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and politics. I'm Matt Bernico, the liberal co-host of the show, just ready to give you all of the straight facts about Joseph Gordon Biden and how good he is. <laughs> That's right. And I'm Dean Detloff. I'm the, the guest they didn't even know they were booking the wild uh, left wing um, shock jock here to tell you all about the insurrection that's going on down on Capitol Hill. And, uh, and I'm going to turn this interview back on you, Matt. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, thank you so much for coming on the show. <laughs> Thanks for having me. <laughs> <laughs> All right, folks, it's been a wild week. It's been an absolute shit show. What can you even do in the face of a weird <laughs> attempted coup insurrection, whatever people are calling it these days? It's hard to tell. In this episode, we're going to take a look at uh, just what happened in this uh, this big insurrection on the Capitol. But um, we're actually going to zero in on some of the religious elements of the story. I think a lot of folks have already started doing this, but we're going to do it better because we're very good at it. Um, <laughs> it's really hard to understand. I mean, like the current organization and mobilization of all these like various right wing forces that showed up at the Capitol uh, on Wednesday from this past week without understanding the ways that Christianity is like deeply twisted up alongside the reactionary politics that are taking place there. Um, you know, you got people with, uh, in Michigan, you have this giant uh, cross being erected outside of the uh, the Michigan State House. You've got big Jesus signs out in front of the Capitol. A, a lot of Jesus stuff going on here, and uh, only your friends Matt and Dean can make sense of it. <laughs> so I'll say this, um, though. Uh, yeah, please. One very important asterisk. Uh, one other friend, Damon Garcia, who we recently had on the show to talk about his great YouTube channel, um, he made a fantastic little video also uh, sorting all this stuff out that's like 15 minutes long on YouTube. So you should for sure check that one out. Yeah, absolutely. Get on YouTube, watch Damon's video. Um, it's really cool. Um, yeah, so anyways, all this stuff is happening in, at the Capitol, um, and it didn't just come out of nowhere. I mean, obviously, if you're listening to our show before, you know that the, um, you know that Christianity has been, you know, a, a constant source of energy for <laughs> right-wing politics. Um, you know, right, the right-wing politics has sort of grasped onto that Christian social network of churches, that's for sure, and also all of its, uh, I mean, you know, all of its media organs as well. We'll talk about that a little bit later on. Um, but anyways, in this episode, we're going to talk about the um, the specific type of fascism that I think we're seeing out here on Capitol Hill and kind of emerging out of uh, right wing politics at this very moment. Something that the liberation theologian Dorothy Zuela calls Christo fascism, which is a uh, a specific brand of fascism that she explains is more or less like self-selecting. It's a, a soft fascism is what she ends up saying. Um, at the center of this type of ideology is kind of a naive obedience to the worst impulses within Christianity. So in this episode, we're going to be talking about the Capitol uh, insurrection for sure. That's all going to be a part of it. So if you're here for that content, you've come to the right place. But uh, <laughs> we're going to be kind of taking a deeper look at the ideology behind uh, some of the uh, the actors of that insurrection. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, it's hard to wrap your brain around all this stuff. Um, it's difficult to sort of know where to start or find a way in. But I do think that the Christian side of all this is not incidental, right? Like uh, you mentioned the Christian iconography there, right? The cross going up, the signs, etc. But I think Zoela actually helps us figure out what is it about Christianity that can also predispose someone to move in that right wing direction. And that is super important for Christians on the left in particular, 
because we have to own that, right? We have to sort of figure out how to uh, deal with our own tradition and criticize it and not push it away as something gross that we don't want to be associated with, but try to metabolize that and, and think through why are our theologies preparing people for fascism some way or another. So before we get to that, Matt, why don't you give us a rundown on the facts of the event so we know what we're even talking about? And then maybe we could also pivot after that to talking about how uh, some Christians are reacting to these events already. Yeah, that sounds good. Um, Here are some facts for you. Well, some editorialized facts for sure. (laughs) (laughs) I want to be fair and balanced. The no spin zone. That's right. The no spin zone. Um, that's true. The insurrection on the Capitol, it all went down on Wednesday, January 6th. So uh, just a few days before we are recording this. Um, basically, what happened is a variety of Trump supporters from all sort of different, uh, I don't know, subgroups, um, some some like militia members, but some just like regular Trump folks from all over the U.S. descended on Washington, D.C. for a day of protest. Um, The Trump supporters gathered at the Capitol building in an obviously orchestrated event to disrupt the confirmation of the results of November's election, because that's what was happening on the inside of the building. If you'll recall, (laughs) sort of hard to miss that (laughs) in the uh, in in all of this. Uh, There are protesters outside. They uh, spent a better part of the day kind of like rallying out front and like yelling at cops. I remember, I mean, personally, I was watching like a live stream of it, um, kind of failing to get any important work done, but uh, was watching kind of. Uh, fascinated as these like old these old men in uh in their own sort of like makeshift black block gear uh would argue with the police officers about uh about uh, <laughs> i don't know black lives matter and everything else they were There's the, the veterans surreal... and the uh the small businessmen that's what i had heard that was the rhetoric <laughs> that's right that's right the uh the night before there was also a a trump march where um the uh, the Trump supporters were yelling at police officers, telling them that you know they're not going to back the blue anymore, and now they're in trouble because the veterans and the small business <laughs> owners are going to get them. But uh, at the on the sixth at the uh, at the Capitol, I remember this very surreal moment when I was watching a live stream, and there's like this old man <laughs> who was um, talking to a um, I, I guess a black police officer. I couldn't really tell because of the riot gear, but that's sort of the context of the, of the conversation made me think that was the case at least. But this old man is trying to convince uh, this black police officer that, uh, that in the 1960s, when he was a kid, uh, there wasn't racism and that the liberals, they just made it. They made uh. racism up. And the, and the police officer is just like, I don't know, just kind of like going along with it. Cause I guess he has to be there, but it was just a very surreal moment. So anyways, that sort of scene um, uh, with, kind of just like a massive amount of these uh these old men out front of the capital um and young men too and women they're all out there really um they're all out there on the sixth uh but things kind of took a took a turn when um when the protesters were sort of um i mean i don't want to say completely led into the building because they did get pepper sprayed and maced and whatnot but you know when they got they got into the building in one way or another the police didn't stop them too ferociously um, but yeah, they entered the Capitol building. Um, the Senate went into lockdown. Uh, they all locked down into their offices. Um, so they wouldn't be, I mean, I don't know, hurt, I suppose, by the Trump supporters who were in the building. Um, the Trump supporters kind of like, I don't know, it's such a weird scene to see some of the pictures, like some of them more militantly than others, but uh, are like milling about the building, you know, like they go into the like the the chamber where the Senate meets and they are kind of like rifling through people's desks. They go to Nancy Pelosi's office to take some pictures, et cetera, et cetera. In all of that though, um, four of the protesters were reported to have died in the building, which is um, not great, no matter who, what the situation. Um, one of the protesters was for sure killed by a police officer. And the other three were um, as CNN reported to have died from quote medical emergencies. So I'm not exactly sure what that means in all the situations, um, the one story that CNN did highlight um, explained that one person died of sort of like a, I guess, a heart attack or uh, having high blood pressure, which That's is kind of tragic. Yeah, it is. It's bad. Um, people dying. Uh, you know, we're we're some crazy left wing communists, but uh, it's not great when people die. I don't like it. Anyways, um, as the day wore on, um, the riot police showed up um, and, and other other like. Um, you know, more militarized people like the National Guard showed up 
FBI, I think, was there, too. It's hard to say exactly. I don't know. All of these different sort of militarized police forces, though, they did show up on the Capitol building and they forced all of the protesters out. They did a sweep. Um, and I think most of the protesters were out kind of later in the day. Um, a 6 p.m. curfew was put into effect, so everyone had to go back to their hotel rooms. Uh, oh, it's probably important to say, too, that uh, all, like almost all of these protesters are not people that live in Washington, D.C., that they're mm-hmm. people who did did get bussed in for this specific event. Uh, or they drove in, whatever. Uh, I, I just I want to pull out that bust in line because <laughs> <Yeah>. um, <laughs> I remember earlier in the summer, my uh, <laughs> there are people in my life who are definitely conservatives who are very concerned about Black Lives Matter protesters being bust in. <laughs> and uh, I do want to just point out that it did happen here. Anyways, <laughs> all that to say, uh, they all went back to their hotels or whatever that they were staying in. Who knows? If you were watching any of the live streams, you've seen the videos. I think that you just kind of understand how chaotic the scene really mm-hmm. was. Mm-hmm. Um, it's hard to communicate how chaotic it actually was in retrospect. <laughs> but I think there is an article that does a pretty good job of uh, sort of parsing out exactly all of these different things, hap- how they happened and like, I don't know, how tense they were <laughs> and weird they were. So um, in an article from The Nation uh, written by Andrew McCormick, uh, the article is called Madness on Capitol Hill. Uh, McCormick explains kind of like the vibe of the chaos later in the day. So I'm going to read uh, kind of a longer portion of this article, but I think it's really worth it because it does communicate, I think, just exactly how off the rails things were. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, here it is. 30 minutes to curfew, riot police moved to push the crowd back. There were altercations, protesters shoved and hit police, their faces with sweaty rage, but most, it seemed, didn't want to be gassed again. And they fell back. People took parting shots. Pigs, is that what we get for backing the blue? You just lost the only people in this country who stand behind you. You serve Satan. Love it. (laughs) (laughs) Fantastic. Um, The article goes on to say, it was growing dark. Park lights along the mall had switched on, illuminating the monuments on the grounds. In the hands of so many retreating protesters, American flags beat in the wind atop the Capitol building and now aglow under low-hanging clouds, the same flag flew. This is not America, a woman said to a small group, her voice shaking. She is crying hysterical. They're shooting at us. They're supposed to shoot Black Lives Matter, but they're shooting the Patriots. A man, possibly her husband, comforter. Don't worry, honey. We showed them today. We showed them what we're all about. I don't want to make light of the situation. It's it's serious. People died. They the fascists mobilized it's all bad right but on the same time it isn't it's an absolute circus it is a carnival of like the goofiest characters showing up to do the weirdest things mm-hmm. um so uh yeah on the one hand i don't want to under i don't want to downplay the uh the real threat i think that this is to people's lives in a lot of different ways but it is also impossible not to read this and not to think through the situation without just like I don't know, seeing how deeply funny it is. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but that's the weird thing about it, right? The the frightening thing um, about it is that it is so kind of farcical, I guess, because there's there's like a seriousness in the dark humor of the whole situation, right? Like these are a bunch of people who felt that they could storm the Capitol, uh, but didn't expect to be tear gassed and apparently didn't even know what it means to be tear gassed. Uh, you know, unsurprisingly, right? They uh, yeah. deny that any of this ever happens in the first place. So it's fascinating for that reason as well. Just that the uh, the humor of it kind of underscores the the seriousness of it too. That people are sort of actually willing to throw themselves at the real and be hit by it, and then figure out what to make sense of or how to make sense of that later on. Um, you know, I think that is a, a big lesson, at least for these folks, and that's troubling as well, right? Uh, now they actually know what they're dealing with and. Um, it's not just a fantasy uh, that you read about on Facebook memes or something like that. Yeah, totally. I mean, it makes you wonder, like, what new ways this might radicalize the folks that were there, right? Mm-hmm. Like, um, you know, now they don't even have respect for police or something. And, and what what new things will that um, urge them to do? Who knows? But it is uh, yeah, darkly funny, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, it's tough. You can pick a thousand <laughs> videos and photos that are, I don't know sincerely very funny (laughs) funny in their in their tragedy and i think it's okay to sort of find that funny um it's also a way of coping with the uh the damage that something like that does um just to your own psyche to know about so anyway that's how i'm giving myself permission maybe to (laughs) to feel everything about it all at once um yeah i think that's good yeah 
I mean, it is bizarre. Uh, there's lots of takes going around about the events, right? How do you make sense of this event? And I'm sure you've seen them all. You listening at home, right? The the liberals have a way of talking about it. Conservatives are already making up all kinds of reasons that you shouldn't worry about this or why it's not really their fault. You know, you have uh, even representatives like Matt Gates or, you know, the worst of the worst saying that um, actually the people who are violent, those were Antifa infiltrating our, our yeah. good clean movement or whatever. So yeah, the, let's let's talk about that really quickly. Yeah, sure, it's really sure. important, actually. So Matt Gates is a representative from Florida. Um, I think it was last night at the uh, like when they're confirming the Electoral College results. He did kind of go on this weird rant about how he, he had heard <laughs> that uh, it wasn't actually these it wasn't actually the good upstanding patriots uh, that uh, did this. It was actually Antifa who kind of infiltrated mm-hmm. the Capitol. And I think it's so important to dispel that myth. Um, because it will definitely give conservatives the space to, yeah, put them, put themselves at some distance, right? It helps conservatives to tell that story. It's not just like a funny, stupid thing that they're saying. It is like legitimately a thing that will harm, uh, comrades of Mm -hmm. ours and yours, I think in the end, right? Uh, more, um, more demonization of Antifa, more demonization of Black Lives Matter protesters is bad for us and it helps, um, it helps like like fascist and conservative enemies. And uh, I think it's really important to recognize that and to, uh, yeah, uh, dispossess <laughs> your uh, your Facebook like conservative family about them. Yeah. yeah. And not only that, right, the uh, not only the conservatives, but the liberals too. like CNN, the rhetoric that they had chosen to report uh, immediately sure. was that uh, these are all anarchists, right, because they don't respect the law or, the, or due process. And that is absurd for so many reasons, right? Anarchists typically don't want the president to say president. Um, but it's it's <laughs> dangerous for us because uh, it's a it's a real problem insofar as that rhetoric will come back to be disciplinary against anarchists down the line, right? By liberals yeah. and conservatives alike. So, um, yep. yes, it's true. It's important to, to pay attention to all that that's going on. Um, all these takes happening lots of different ways. People are trying to distance themselves or not, or I don't know, seeing this as a moment of reckoning, we can deal with that maybe in a minute. But I think what's been really interesting to me actually is seeing that there were a lot of immediate takes from different uh, Christian and religious people. Um, this is not the kind of thing that I'm used to seeing when it comes to big events like this. I don't know, like bigger ones like Charlottesville, maybe you see this kind of stuff come out, but smaller events like uh, Black Lives Matter protests or something, you might hear this or that, but uh, even the Catholic media or Christian media doesn't seem too interested in in reporting on sort of the general reaction. And in this particular case, there's all there's just article after article of like this person is saying that and whatever. So the dust hasn't really settled, but lots of Christians have been quick to denounce this event. And we can maybe talk more about why that is or why it might be. So I'll, I'll just round up maybe a, a really quick brief picture of it. Um, Religious orders in particular have been really um, on the ball and outspoken, especially nuns and sisters. There's a a good um, National Catholic Reporter article about them that you can find. I'm sure it's on their front page by now. But the the gist is, you know, everybody that you'd expect, right, the Mary Nollers, Dominicans and this or that city, etc., are all putting out uh, um, statements um, denouncing it one way or another. There's I think better or worse ones, but nevertheless, it's good that they were so immediate. There's also been some Catholic bishops who've been speaking out about it, which is uh, a turn. Um, A lot of Catholic bishops have been pretty reticent. Even progressive ones have been reticent to kind of immediately react. And that is something that they're, they seem to be sort of more outspoken about pretty unusual. Um, Jim Wallace at Sojourners gave a, I don't know, extremely generic Jim Wallace take. Uh, You've already read it 30 times earlier than now. Um, But weirdly, he does go out of his way to highlight David French's disagreement with Christian nationalism. Why that is, you couldn't, I couldn't tell you. Um, All that to say, (laughs) it's a pretty standard Jim Wallace piece. Um, So on the one hand, it's, I think it's really good to see a lot of Christians do think this is a, a moment of reckoning or a moment where they need to say something or speak out, right? Um, there is this sort of recognition even among uh, not so progressive Christians that this is a big deal. On the other hand, though, I think it's also really important to figure out what exactly this moment is and how to respond to it or how not to respond to it. Um, You know, denouncing it is important, but also how you denounce it and 
and what kind of rhetoric you use to denounce it makes all the difference. So I don't know, Matt, maybe we could talk about some sort of misunderstandings around this event um, yeah. as we sort of build up to our own thoughts about Christofascism. Mm-hmm. Something that you'll hear every now and again um, in some of these takes is that the uh, the insurgency of the capital is just a bridge too far, that um, this is something that's kind of like um, outside the norm. Uh, but those takes are sort of problematic because they really neglect that... Uh, I don't know, the real history of white supremacy and Christianity on the right, right? Um, if you weren't uh, if you weren't pissed about Charlottesville um, and, and you weren't going to repent about that, then like, why be pissed now, right? Mm-hmm. Um, if you weren't pissed about uh, George Floyd being murdered by cops and like protesting this summer, like, why are you pissed now? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I mean, framing this as like a, a moment of like the, the straw that broke the camel's back or whatever the saying is, <laughs> um, I think is, uh, I mean, it's, it's a fantasy, right? <laughs> For sure. Yeah. This is just like the the most visible manifestation of white supremacy at the very moment. Uh, if you uh, if you weren't pissed before now, then you weren't paying attention. Yeah, I mean, I'll say like y- you know, uh, you never know when like you're gonna get knocked off your horse, like Saul. Have those scales put in your eyes, and then have them fall off later, and you become Paul, right? You can never predict that. Um, <laughs> And uh, I don't know, maybe maybe a lot of people were in denial for a long time. And this is the moment that finally made them fess up to what's going on. And and that's good. (laughs) That's good. Um, Which, of course, means you have to do a lot of work to figure out where you were for the last uh, several years. But I I think uh, it's important to recognize, right, what's different about this moment as opposed to Charlottesville. You know, we talked about Charlottesville after it happened and uh, trying to think through questions of violence and all that kind of stuff. And I think one lesson kind of comparing these two things is like what's different. The thing that seems different about this is that the real sin is that the uh, the protesters, the right wing people, whatever you want to call them, they entered the the sort of holy of holies of the Capitol building. Right. They were getting in the way of the the sacred process of legislation, the sort of symbol of normativity, the symbols of civility, all these kinds of things. That's really the problem, that they they were ugly in a place where you're supposed to be like a tourist. Um, mm-hmm. So the problem isn't white supremacy as such, which is clear, right? If it was, then you would have been upset at Charlottesville three years ago. You would have been upset before that, right? Uh, when Donald Trump was being like endorsed by David Duke or whatever. Um, yeah, totally. But like at this stage, I think it's really an optics problem. It's like. You don't want to see mm. that kind of white supremacy in a place that you think should be sort of sacrosanct, which is a, a fascinating maybe moment of revelation for the idolatry of like American liberal democracy or something. And I think, right. I don't know, to me, it's important that especially religious people denouncing these events realize that the the sin here, the problem, the violence is not uh, primarily that they broke into the Capitol building. It is that this is one more in a long series of manifestations of uh, you know, absolute hatred and, and white supremacy and all the rest of it. Like that is the uh, the real issue and, and not this kind of breach of, of ethics or breach of the, the code or whatever it might be. Yeah, I think that's really a good way to put it, actually. There's a um, a phrase from Jean Baudrillard, who's a just one more French philosopher that I like to think about um, <laughs> in uh, moments of catastrophe, I guess. Um in one of his books, he says that uh, the real scandal is that there wasn't a scandal or the, the real scandal is that, you know, there mm. hasn't been a scandal this whole time that the uh, that uh, the blatant white supremacy in um, in our governing bodies, in in the police, in grain in our society is not a scandal. Right. <laughs> that's the that's the scandal mm-hmm. that no one's really been upset about it until it does rear its head in this like uh, the, sp- the space that explicates it um, mm-hmm. from from the norm or something. So. There you yeah. go. Some French, some French philosophy for you if you if you wanted it. <laughs> I think too, if you don't kind of get at that point, right? If you don't um, locate the problem appropriately, you know, I, I'm not trying to sit here and be like we're smarter than everybody else or anything like that. I don't think that's true. But I think the left, being in a leftist tradition like Marxism, tries to teach you to look for where power is really manifesting or where the uh, right where you know where power is circulating and all that kind of stuff. And if you don't see that within the manifestation of white supremacy or the manifestation of right-wing fascism in a case like this, uh, you're going to also probably draw a lot of weird conclusions. You know, lots of people are already saying things like, um, uh, 
uh, I don't know, the police should have been like 10 times more violent with them than they were with Black Lives Matter or something. And it's like, mm-hmm. no, <laughs> you don't want to you don't want to end up supporting one side of uh, institutionalized white supremacist violence over and against uh, deinstitutionalized erratic white supremacist violence. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's just uh, it's important to sort of you know, get your your political uh, categories in order, not so that you can be the smartest person in the room, but so that you can um, try to figure out where the power imbalances really are and, and what you should be maybe also mindful about in terms of uh, responsing, re- responding. Yeah, totally. I think that's good. Um, another misunderstanding I think that people bring to the capital insurgency is that what people are calling it the capital insurgency i that's the, i just keep saying good that question. I guess, over and over maybe we don't really decide on a rhetoric would, yeah we'll have to wait for the history books to be written um <laughs> to, to know for sure but i'll just keep saying that i guess um but people keep like i, I think there's a, a profound sense of surprise being communicated mm-hmm. uh in some of the takes that have been written and i find that kind of bizarre like I mean, for the reasons that you just said, right, that um, white supremacy is always sort of like there for sure. But there's also like a deeper, more obvious way. This is just kind of a bizarre take, like the unpredictability of it all or that this is like something new or unexpected to happen because like it was planned <laughs> like mm-hmm. pretty, pretty thoroughly publicly, um, publicly even on Instagram. And that seems weird to me. Um a lot of folks have circulated. I mean, Twitter is just like impossible to look at right now because of how much is happening. Um, I mean, kind of like it always is, I guess. But uh, <laughs> there are a lot of folks sharing um, a, a tweet from the past um, from December 21st where, um, I don't know, some comms, political comms guy was talking about um, uh, about how like there is going to be this big event on January 6th where all of these like Trump guys are going to come to the Capitol <laughs> and like try to disrupt mm-hmm. the, the Joe Biden win. And like that was in December. Like everyone knew this was going to happen. Um, and uh, I don't know. So we, we can't pretend to be shocked like that. We didn't know this like that. Nobody knew this. This was going to occur. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was going to for sure. And uh, in in some ways, at least, it seems like the uh, the police who were there to kind of handle the situation might have been complicit in it. Um, mm-hmm. But that's a conversation for a different time, maybe. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's right. And it's a good point, right? That uh, people feigning surprise. I don't know. It's, I guess it's that same thing. You haven't been paying attention or you've been, um, it's been convenient that you didn't have to or something, whatever it might be. But um, yeah, that's important. I think one, one other piece to add here, maybe before we start moving on is uh there's also a lot of folks who I think have trouble um, considering like how to characterize the protesters, right? That is always a standard narrative and a standard a standard problem for thinking about Trump supporters in particular. But in this case, there's all kinds of like classist and uh, weird assumptions that get made about these kinds of folks. Um, you know, whatever, dumb, dumb, poor people from rural, whatever, getting <laughs> busted into the Capitol, et cetera. Uh, I think, you know, there is a story to be told about the fact that a lot of rural spaces are uh, Trump spaces, not all of them. And and they're more complicated than the press understands. But it is true that there is a lot of resentment going on there. And and that resentment is racialized. It's uh, it is economic. It's all all these things all at once. Um, But by kind of looking down our noses at, I don't know, these dumb poors who are like enchanted by, you know, the idol of Donald Trump. Um, which is a rhetoric that you see by lots of liberals and lots of Christians, too. Um, that is like, first of all, extremely counterintuitive because that's not the problem. <laughs> the problem is not that they're poor. Uh, the problem is that they're sucked into a racialized narrative. Um, mm. But also uh, it uh, it completely insulates you from understanding how you might be complicit in also contributing to a culture that allows these things right. to happen. And that's important to, to always sort of not not pretend that your uh, your hands are clean. Um, without, you know, without ending up self-flagellating all the time or whatever. I think it's a necessary thing to do to keep asking that question. How am I implicated in this event? Yeah, I think so. And I mean, I think that uh, getting away from that complicity is probably what's driving a lot of these takes, right? A lot of these, Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of, especially from from religious folks too, who are are really quick to (laughs) jump back from it and condemn it. They want to make sure that uh, they aren't 
to be, you know, they aren't at fault. I mean, and some of them, like, it's probably true. They aren't at fault. But in others, <laughs> it's probably less less true, less obviously mm-hmm. true, at least. Um, yeah, complicity, I think, plays a, a big part in, in how these stories are being told. Well, speaking of complicity, I'll read what I think is probably the best Christian take that I've found so far. I should say, too, you know, I'm I'm not uh, when I did that sort of list of Christians saying stuff today, I'm not saying that they're all bad. Some of them are very good, especially the religious orders. I mean, lots of them have plenty of on the ground experience with dealing with this stuff. So, by the way, I'm not I'm not saying everyone is wrong and we're right or anything like that. And also, there's probably a lot of other good takes that I just haven't seen yet. So I'm hoping to find more, especially this weekend when I have some more time to poke around. But um, one that I really appreciated was from Father Brian Massengale at America Magazine. If you don't know Brian Massengale, he's a really incredible uh, Catholic priest who is a black liberation theologian, does all kinds of fascinating work in um, anti-racism, but also Catholic moral uh, philosophy and theology in general. Um, just a really interesting character. Lots of good books and, and interviews you can read with him. Anyway, he wrote this article called The Racist Attack on Our Nation's Capital. Uh, there's a lot of good pieces in it, but I'll just read one paragraph. He says, We cannot feign surprise because for years the core of Mr. Trump's appeal has been stoking white resentment at the changing face of America. What we saw today is a clear declaration that many white people would rather live in a white dictatorship than in a multiracial democracy. If democracy means sharing power with people of color, especially black people, then they want no part of it. Today is the inevitable consequence of the nation's tolerance of white racism, but Trump is not solely responsible for this debacle. And after that, he goes on to say that uh, especially people who were silent during the presidency, you know, whether they had positions of power or whatever, but also religious leaders who brushed off all the racism leading up to this event as sort of incidental or it shouldn't make a difference on how you think about electoral politics, all that kind of stuff. um, All those people are also complicit. And he sort of ends on an ominous note of saying, you know, we also shouldn't be surprised if we see this again when we don't sort of deal with these problems. Um, Yeah. I think, I mean, it's a profound piece. I encourage people to read it. It's not that long. It's a, definitely a hot take. Um, I encourage people to read it because uh, it's, first of all, written by somebody who's been thinking about this for a long time. And, you know, a lot of people just start thinking about it in the moment, in the heat of the moment. And uh, Brian Massengale knows what he's talking about better than a lot of other people. So it's important to see mm-hmm. that. Um, but it's also, I think, really significant insofar as it does sort of name uh the the issues at hand right like it it names problems of cynicism um it names uh it calls out people trying to sort of brush off the the racism you know it it, like white supremacy has flashed up i guess in a, a white hot moment several times over trump's presidency and every single time that it flashes up people try to just sort of wait for it to die back down right and mm-hmm. the fact that this is the the big flash up <laughs> so close to Trump when Trump's going to be out of office when there's nothing to lose. It's also like the least consequential flash up in that sense. So uh, yeah. it's important to to draw that continuity narrative out, right? That this is the kind of thing that has been, um, you know, like it's been stoked for a long, long time and it's just going to keep on happening if you don't do something about it. So uh, read what uh, at least Brian Massengale has to say. Yeah, it's such a good take. I really appreciate uh, that way of putting it, of recognizing that there's like a a network of enabling behind it. You know, it's mm-hmm. not just um, it's not just Trump. It's not just the Republicans. I mean, it's also the Democrats, right? <laughs> but it's also like all of us who are I don't know don't have the time to to de radicalize our family and friends too. I mean, there's a real sense in which like there's you know to to escape complicity from this is is too much. You can't do it. Um, there's like a larger societal ill that I think this names that's really helpful. Um, mm-hmm. In Angela Davis's book, um, Our Prison's Obsolete, there's a line that I think always kind of rings in my head, um, annoyingly so, because <laughs> it's very <laughs> challenging. Um, but she says, uh, you know, how did we become so well adjusted to injustice? And mm-hmm. I think that's a really great question to, you know, ask ourselves as well as our family and our friends and our representatives during this time. Um, you know, why, why is it as bad as this, <laughs> you know, like mm-hmm. why, and, and not, not just, uh, not just in terms of the capital, but like in the everyday life, uh, uh, just in, in everyday life, why is it as bad as it is? Like, why do we let things kind of go on and be the way they are? And, uh, mm-hmm. I think it's a helpful challenge and one I don't like, but here it is. 
<laughs> yeah, I think that's right. Well, okay, so I think there's a lot of ways in. We said we promised at the beginning we were going to get to the Christofascism piece. We're going to get to the analysis, and I think that it's about time that we do halfway through the episode. Um, you know, <laughs> right after we <laughs> right after we're from these sponsors, you're going to get it. No, yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, you know, there's there's a lot of ways into this, and certainly talking about white supremacy is the most significant. I think it's really important to sort that out. We've tried to do that in the past with lots of other people. Um, and, uh, you know, that's, I think still the place to start. Um, one other place that I think is really useful though, is Dorothy Zoela's analysis of what she calls Christofascism. So we've talked about Zoela on the show in the past. Um, some quick background. She is a, she was a German theologian. She did a lot of work in New York city and at union seminary. So she was kind of between Germany and the U S she was part of, uh, global solidarity networks. She was part of Christians for Socialism. She's a, uh, a socialist, um, Protestant theologian, very attentive to what's going on in the global South. Um, fascinating character. Wrote, wrote a lot was of cool she a poetry. Of Democratic Socialism? I think so. She had some kind of connection, at least, to DSA if she wasn't a member. Um, I mean, yeah, it would have been I think so too. not called DSA at the time. What was it? Demsock. Yeah, that's right. Um, which I don't know. There's a whole thing going on there. <laughs> Lots sure. of complicated feelings about that. But anyway, uh, she was around. She was one though, of the good that's ones. The point. Yes, exactly. She was around. Um, she was even more impressively. She was really invested in anti-imperialism, um, which Demsock was not always. So good for her. Um, anyway, she, being from Germany, obviously had a lot of interesting um, things to say about fascism and Christianity in particular. And I think what's especially interesting about Zoela is she brings that kind of analysis when she comes to the United States, but she finds that she has to think differently about fascism in the U.S. and also about how Christianity plays into it. So there's lots of stuff you can read. Christofascism is kind of a, a term that appears on a lot of her work. Um, there's a nice little chapter in a book of hers called The Window of Spirituality, uh, or sorry, The Window of Vulnerability. And uh, it's not very long. It's just called Christofascism. And I think it's kind of a nice way into the issue here. Um, one more prefatory note, maybe. Uh, so she she begins by really talking about how the situation in the United States is so bizarre. And she's writing, you know, at the height of televangelism in particular. Um, and she really carves that out as like a, a unique space that all these people on TV um, kind of captivate Christians in these unique ways, and then they funnel them into uh, really weird right-wing projects through all kinds of different mechanisms that she identifies really effectively. I think a lot of that analysis is still actually pretty good, um, but we have to figure out how to update that in terms of our own kind of technical media. So anyway, all that prefatory note um, out of the way. Uh, Matt, um, can I ask you what really sticks out to you about Zoela's analysis of Christofascism, especially as we're thinking about Christofascism on Capitol Hill? Yeah, man, so much. Um, there's a lot that sticks out to me. I think so. There's this whole section she has is called the Electronic Church that I would love to kind of spend a lot of time thinking about. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but you know, for us, it'd be a lot different, right? The conversation would be less about televangelism. It'd be more about, I don't know, Facebook, I guess, YouTube, YouTube Church. Who knows? Um, I, I mean, there's a whole on Instagram or whatever. Yeah, yeah, totally. There's like a whole a whole different type of network of um, of Christian media um, that is far different than uh, Zuela was writing about. But I think some of the same ideas kind of apply. Um, you know, the uh, it turns it turns religion into a certain type of lifestyle product you're buying and and so on. It's it's a good point that Zuela brings up. So I think that's really cool. I like that a lot because of my interest in media, I guess. Um, I think the thing that really sticks out to me most, though, is um, the characteristics of Christofascism. So, I mean, when you think about fascism, you think about, uh, you know, the the black shirts marching through the streets and like shooting people and burning buildings down. And, you know, uh, you, get, you get a gun held up to your head and said, are you are you with the, the Nazis? Are you not? <laughs> right. <laughs> that uh, that. Fascism is totalitarian in the sense of compulsion, like phys physical compulsion. Um, but the thing that um, Dorothy Zuela notes about the specific brand of Christo fascism is that it's not compulsory. Um, and I think that's really fascinating. And mm -hmm. there must be th there's definitely a Christian logic to that non compulsion part of it. Um, 
mm-hmm. it's a very Armenian type of fascism or something where it's like, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, like you have to make the decision <laughs> for yourself or something <laughs> um, to let Jesus into your heart, uh, the, the Christo-fascist Jesus into your heart or whatever. <laughs> Anyways, let me read this part from uh, from the chapter and we can maybe talk through it a little bit more. Um, okay, so a little bit into the chapter, uh, Dorothy's Zuela says this. But the most dangerous thing about Christo-fascist religion is precisely that it is not compulsory, nor is it brought about in totalitarian fashion by violence. It is a matter of what critical Americans call, quote, soft fascism, chauvinistic nationalism, militarization of one's own land and all its dependent countries, the still unconquered racism that expresses itself also in the reintroduction of capital punishment, celebration of violence in films to the extent that the victims are described as quote communists sort of a dated thing but i guess uh calling people communists is as a thing again now um all of these fascist tendencies are not imposed by violence but instead are freely bought and one of the essential differences between this and european fascism is in my judgment the geopolitical fact that nowadays the concentration camps are not close to weimar or munich but are far away in El Salvador, in the Philippines, in South America, and wherever the great world power permits and encourages torture and murder or has done so in the past. Okay. So there's a lot of stuff going on here for sure. Um, but I, I guess let me focus in on the, yeah, the compulsive, the compulsion part. Um, you know, it's uh Christo fascism is a certain type of ideology um, that uh, no one has to force on you with a gun but it's forced on you through like a, a series of like social pressures that are going to push you into this in one way or another. Right. It's like, it's all of these things. Uh, it's all of the, uh, I don't know, the, the Christian rhetoric you might see on Facebook or on Instagram. It's like the lifestyle Christian blogger, like Instagram bloggers. I don't know if that, I don't know if that's probably not what they're called, but that's what I'm going to call them. Um, <laughs> it's, you know, it's your pastor, um, uh, having a, a special Freedom Sunday celebration where you're going to wave the flag in church and say the Pledge of Allegiance. Um, it, it's like the production of Christian media that glorifies the um, the lives of some and the deaths of others. Um, I mean, there's a, I can't remember the name of the movie, but there was a Kevin Sorbo movie that came out that's not, not God's Not Dead, but it's a different one where that's like the plot of the movie is that uh, Antifa is like, in, is, is out there prowling and they have to defend their, their farm and their daughter from these scary boys. Um, anyways, I mean, everything that Dorothy Zuela is saying about Christofascism are, um, I think, extremely <laughs> prescient and that they do exist in the world that we currently live in. Um, yeah, so I think that's a really fascinating bit about it. It's uh, it's a uh, Christofascism is a political ideology that you become socialized into um, and pressured into through all these different, um, yeah, these like different methods that uh you know you get sucked in through yeah i think that's right i mean it's interesting to the choice of the term christofascism as a uh an analog distinct from european fascism as she puts it i think is really clever kind of because you know fascism in germany and italy um spain to a much lesser extent spain is pretty christofascist but in a different sort of way um, mm. those sorts of fascisms, I mean, they, they mobilize lots of Christians. There's a, a Christian fascist element to them. Um, but they also, they don't, um, I don't know, they don't rely on your Christian piety necessarily. Uh, right. Like you, you can be a Christian or not, basically. I mean, certainly you can't be a Jew or whatever, but like, um, you, uh, you don't have to be like a very pious person in order to be like a good Nazi, right? In fact, lots of them are not, um, lots of them are, right? Not, not trying to get the church out of that situation is very bad. But, um, I think what's really unique about, uh, Zoela's naming of Christofascism is that it is, it necessarily depends on the kinds of, um, I guess like psychotheological, uh, habits that can be implanted in you by Christianity specifically, um, and by active participation in it, right? So, like, for instance, she says, um, people are told, this is her in the text, people are told repeatedly that pornography, homosexuality, and promiscuity go with secular humanism, Satanism, and communism. These last three are lumped together without distinction. The primitiveness of the argumentation is scandalous. For believers who are dependent on authority and in search of something to hold on to, religion is instrumentalized in order to engender hate, to lead them into battle, into crusades. 
It is this instrumentalization of religion for completely different ends that inspired me to formulate uh, the, the concept of Christofascism. I think that is really significant, right? That um, there's a certain way that Christian rhetoric uh, can prepare you to, you know, storm the Capitol building <laughs> in Washington, yeah. D.C. in like the dumbest costume that you could find with the big Christian flag waving behind you. There's a way that Christianity can prepare you to do that in ways that other kinds of ideologies don't, which is not to say that, you know, you can find your own way there outside of Christianity, right? Um, <laughs> you can you can find it through whatever, all kinds of stuff, paganism and all the rest of that. But uh, to figure out how Christianity gets you there in particular, I think is, is really important. And Zoela tries to sort of get our brains moving in that direction. I think, though, we could... Uh, pick up a little bit more on that self-selecting piece that you were mentioning, Matt. Um, yeah. Cause that pulls us back into a, a broader conversation, even about how Christianity prepares you for that. Um, just to add one more log to that fire. She says also in our public discussion, the concept of fascism has been almost completely reduced to totalitarianism, even by the moderate right. All the other essential elements of German fascism in particular, such as its racist mania and its militarism are dismissed as irrelevant According to the strange logic of some of our guardians of democracy, President Reagan, because he was democratically elected, simply cannot have any fascist tendencies. Um, I think that is really important, right? Uh, and it's one that you see in the United States all the time. Um, but thinking through that self-selecting piece helps us figure out what exactly it is that might be sort of a fascist tendency um, about both Trump and about the, the Christian supporters on Capitol Hill. Yeah, I think so. I mean, the um, the self-selecting part of Christofascism, I think, makes it really hard for people who are within it to understand it as such. Like, um, that you can just, that, that they've opted into it, right? That, like, the people who I think are, um, who circulate in Christofascist spaces, they wouldn't, they, they couldn't think of themselves as fascist because they think of fascism as, as something that is totalitarian in the sort of, mm -hmm. like, coercive, violent way. They don't really understand the ways that um, coercion functions, I think, in different, uh, you know, along different lines, not uh, not violence, but social uh, social coercion and stuff. So I think it's mm -hmm. like it's an interesting self-selection um, because it hides the fact that the the compulsion is still there, but just in a different way. I, I guess mm -hmm. that's sort of a muddy way of saying it, I guess. But you know, you're you're with it, you're in it because you think that you've chosen this because like the entire religion that you belong to is um, predicated in the idea that you have to choose Jesus, right? So you're there because mm -hmm. you made that choice in your life, and like I don't want to downplay that whatsoever. Um, I, like uh, the the brands of Christianity that believe in free wills put so much emphasis on that decision to follow Jesus. Like that's such a such a a pivotal moment for people, and like that sort of moment in people's lives is played up. So like. To talk about that as fascism, I think, doesn't make sense to people within it because um, they've very clearly chosen it. So I guess that's like something that is kind of insidious about it, that uh, you would be in it. It would be, in fact, fascist, <laughs> but not in the coercive, violent sense. And that, I think, prohibits a lot of people from understanding to the understand the extent to which they are like deeply entrenched and kind of trapped in this way of life. Yeah, and it's also it helps us get at that sort of weird dialogue between compulsion and self-selection, right? Like you you choose you make a personal choice for Jesus, which of course always happens in a social context, which may or may not be coercive, and you may or may not know it is you're though, being coerced. But it is. Yeah, I mean, yeah, sure. I guess what I mean is, yeah, like this is what I mean. Nobody's holding a gun to your head saying accept Jesus into your heart, but like they're holding a lot of emotional strings <laughs> and pulling on them in order mm -hmm. to make you make that decision, right? Um, and I think that once you've made it too, you end up in all kinds of uh, social spaces that do uh, make this this self-selection more and more compulsory, whether or not you realize it, right? Um, mm -hmm. You know, you're freely buying it, right? You're, uh, <laughs> you're only listening to Christian music. You're only watching Christian movies, all that kind of stuff. Um, but the minute you, like, say a cuss... Uh, you're going to have a lot of uh, social pressures on you that make you rethink that decision, right? That compel you to do something different, um, which is like an extremely innocent version of uh, of what the logic that Zoela is <laughs> sort of identifying, obviously. Sure. But I think, you know, it, it sort of ramps up into uh, something that, that ends at supporting extremely violent, extremely brutal 
uh, kinds of national policies, but also these sort of weird actions like on Capitol Hill. I guess the big question is like, you know, how do you make sense of the self-selection of people sort of all converging on Capitol Hill, belonging to no Christo-fascist party, right? There's not one out there that you could go join, register as, um, you know, there's lots of sort of groups with more and less organization. But like, I was, I think of that video of uh, this woman going around where you've probably seen it, I guess, if you're on the internet, the internet but she uh, she's talking to a, a Yahoo news person and like her eyes are just streaming with tears and she is completely flabbergasted that she could possibly be tear gassed while uh, trying to storm the Capitol. And she says like this was supposed to be a revolution. Like she's like she cannot sort of conceive of the fact that the police turned against her in this particular moment, um, mm. you know, in a limited sort of way. Uh, and I think that that is such a revealing sort of piece of this, right? You sort of, you buy into this fantasy so much, um, so much so that you would actually do something completely bizarre without any assumption that like anything's going to happen. And, uh, whether she's a Christian or not, I don't know, but she like, you know, that's the kind of thing that a Christian can be duped into doing, I guess, (laughs) with like a completely rosy picture of what's going to happen on the other end. Yeah, totally. Um, well, if you're listening to us talk and you're like, Matt and Dean, this sounds interesting, but I don't believe you. I don't believe that Christianity could be coercive in this way. <laughs> okay, I'm, I'm I'm making up somebody to be mad at in this situation. But say you are that person, you just need to go to a church camp. That's where this all happens, <laughs> par excellence. You can see the ways that uh, Christo-fascist logics of self-selecting um, into <laughs> incredibly, it, but both uh, along incredibly coercive lines. That that's where they happen. Church camp. Yeah. Um. You'll be there. It'll be a Thursday night. You're gonna go home tomorrow, and it's gonna be great. You'll go back and see your cat or whatever <laughs> at your house. <laughs> but before you get there, you have to sit through one more service where uh you'll hear a really impassioned speaker. Uh, the music will swell, and the next thing you know, you and all your friends will be bawling your eyes out, and you'll be down at the front of the room converting your life all the way to jesus christ and uh next thing you know you'll be a young republican and uh storm the capitol so that's how that's how it goes that's the pipeline it's true it's either that it's either that or you end up reading uh uh leo tolso and you become a christian anarchist for a while those are the two pathways the two the two trees you can you can follow um i think though you know we're, we're getting to the end of the episode here but um I guess I want to sort of draw out one last piece from Zoela's analysis that I think is really good, which is, uh, so I said earlier, she she leads up to this analysis by talking about televangelism. The point that she's making there is all these people sit at home, they watch TV, they see a version of Christianity on television that makes all kinds of promises to them, and they want those promises because they have material needs that would be fulfilled by them. Um, so they, you know, they get caught up in all these cycles of thinking, and, you know, there are people in my life who are into this kind of thing. So I'm, I'm going to say anecdotally, she's spot on. She got it right. Um, but, uh, what's even more troubling is beyond even the televangelism situation, uh, with things like social media, all this stuff is like a thousand times more insidious than it ever was. Even when she was writing, like, or I guess it's accelerated maybe as a way of putting it. Um, you know, you can get on Facebook and start scrolling through and there's like Franklin Graham telling you, I don't know, that it's going to be a, a big Jesus moment or something on January 6th. And you don't even have to know what that is, but you're already kind of prepared to see something. Um, and I think that is really significant. Sort of think through what is it about uh, the constellation of Christian power that um, sort of slowly folds you into, um, I don't know, saying that these people are totally normal or like saying that it's Antifa has, has gotten into the, these, these bad apples or whatever have gotten into and spoiled the whole bunch or something. I think that's yeah. a, a real key, right? Trying to think through that, those new sort of um, relations between our changing media environment and those uh, weird habits of like Christian obedience, uh, Christian trust, how's all that sort of coming together and, and collapsing right now. Um, that's going to be the thing to watch in the next, whatever, four years under Joe Biden. Where Where is all that stuff sort of pushing people? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I don't want to belabor the point any, but I think that that media ecology bit is really key to understanding the perpetuation of these ideologies and like, you know, for the long term, I think. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, I don't know. Think about it this way, I guess. Like, if you were going to be a really good upstanding person and try to talk to a a conservative or right-wing family member about whatever's happening 
in the world, right? And uh, you might have a very good conversation with them, and you think that you get somewhere. But like the second they leave you, which and and you know they look at their phone, they look on Facebook, they look at Instagram, they look at Twitter. All of a sudden, like they'll be bombarded with the absolute opposite takes of what you just said, right? Mm-hmm. And the uh, that that small space, that small like uh, progress you might have made with them will be undone because of just like the cacophony of um, of these talking points to be in their face. You know, the 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 onslaught of this type of messaging on people um, is something that is like impossible to really overcome if they are committed mm-hmm. to like using these platforms, I think it's a very hard thing to like really get around. So mm-hmm. I don't know. Um, I don't know what to do about it, but all I'm trying to say is that uh, it'll be interesting to see where these push these, these like uh, ideologies push people, but it's like uh, it, it ends up being, I mean, without real organizing, like a real big effort mm-hmm. to, I think like engage with people and actively de-radicalize them. I think that things will only become um, more tense uh, and probably worse from here on out yeah i mean that's what i was gonna say too as sort of an end i guess is i don't know personal family relationships are always complicated and i never want to give anybody advice about that because yeah absolutely good luck i haven't figured it out so let me know (laughs) if you do but um when it comes to things like uh how do you combat these these issues in the world or whatever I think the the liberal response is to say, well, if you just have the sort of unforced force of the better argument, you know, eventually your opponent is going to submit. Or like if we just sort of strengthen our civil institutions or if we put our hope in in the police and make them arrest the right people or all that kind of stuff will all come out on the other side. I think the left knows that all these things are things that have been tried 100 times and there's nothing stopping anyone from doing it now. So there must be a good reason why they're not. And I think you know, you you just said, like, it takes a massive organizing effort. I guess the maybe the the summary of my entire political view is like organize and repent at the same time, right? Like, you have to you have to sort of really organize people to make them understand what solidarity looks like and how to wish for a better world. And you have to organize people you don't like and all that kind of stuff. That's the the hardest piece. Um, The other is uh, repenting in terms of trying to figure out where you're still complicit in things like white supremacy and uh, where you're still sort of feeding into this stuff or reproducing it or whatever. Um, there's a kind of dialectical relationship between self-reflection and political work that I think Christianity and the left are both uh, trying to get people to think about all the time, but uh, easier said than done. All that to say, um, what happened on Capitol Hill is not going to be the last time that anything like that happens. Uh, and the only way to get rid of it is to sort of put in for the long haul, I guess, you know, <laughs> increase union yeah. density, <laughs> get out there and put it all, put all your, all your chips on black lives matter, all those social movements, et cetera. I think that's the only way out. Yeah, I think you're right. Wow. That was easy. Usually Matt's always <laughs> like, I don't know about that, but this time <laughs> uh, I'm very, I'm very agreeable. I think, <laughs> I think you're right. Well, what a doozy for a, a first real sort of new year's episode, but, um, Let's see. I don't know. It'll be different next week. Oh, we should say next week we know what we're doing. That's not always true. We're going to talk to Taylor Genovese, who we were supposed to talk to this week about communism and morality. And we said, hey, can we postpone? Because we have to think through this problem together on this podcast. (laughs) And uh, Taylor really, really graciously said, yes, um, I'm happy to come out next week. So you can look forward to that. Um, If you want to do, we've never done this before either. If you want to do the reading ahead of time, You can read Taylor's article at a journal called Peace, Land and Bread. Um, It's about Christian or excuse me, it's about communism and morality. It's a really fascinating piece. We'll dig into it more uh, next week. Um, I don't know why I'm suddenly sort of like doing all these uh, housekeeping notes at the end, Matt. But is there anything I'm forgetting? (laughs) No, that's it. It's called it's called the necessity of communist morality. Peace, Land and Bread. Just Google it or we'll tweet about it. I don't know. Um, But it's really cool. It's a really short article. Uh, a lot of good stuff in there about morality and Lenin and uh, I don't know, lots of likes. So do do the re- come to class. Having read the text is what you can do. <laughs> but uh, until then, um, if you like what you heard, you can support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash the Magnificast. Um, you can uh, oh give us a review on iTunes. That would be really kind of you. Um, mm-hmm. That helps us in the big algorithm, I suppose. Um, you can follow us on Twitter. We have a uh, Facebook group called the Magnificast Basement. Um, 
Oh yeah, if you do. Sorry, this is these are all over the place as I'm kind of coming <laughs> to them. <laughs> but uh, if you do support us on Patreon at uh, two dollars or more, you can get an invitation to the members only Magnificast lock in uh discord channel god mm-hmm. we're on there we've been having a lot of a lot of big convos lately it's been really fun i've been enjoying uh using discord and talking to people so if you want to talk to us i guess you can do it there all right um our intro music is by amari armstrong our outro music is by the logical spoon and we will see you next church week. in the morning church in the morning souls alive heaven come to earth and there won't be no church we'll meet down by the riverside there we'll swim with all creation Never get tired, never bored Don't worry, someday There'll be no dam between us and our Lord Jackson, keep your hoods up you Keep your hoods up And you stay up late Jackson, keep your hoods up Where you keep your hoods up and you stay up late Oh, don't mind a cold night But we might mind if you leave too soon So come on now, it's still early